This is Gestoras. Gestoras Podcasts brings you conversations with cultural managers from the North and the South. We celebrate the work of Latina cultural managers, sharing their stories of success, challenges, and lessons learned. The episodes alternate between Spanish and English each week. El episodio de hoy de Gestoras es en inglés. Pueden leer la transcripción en español en nuestro sitio web o pueden ver el episodio en YouTube con subtítulos en español. Maya Burchett is an intellectual property attorney and creator advocate in Washington, D.C. As copyright claims attorney at the United States Copyright Office, she works with copyright creators and users navigating the new Copyright Claims Board, the nation's first intellectual property small claims court. You can find out more about our guest and her accomplishments by visiting our website at gestoras.net. That is G-E-S-T-O-R-E-S dot net. Hello, Maya. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Good. It's so good to have you here. Thank you for being here. Of course. I'm really excited. I'm really excited to have you here uh, for your background and the work that you've done. And also because you're our first attorney. Uh, we haven't <laughs> had any attorneys yet uh, related to the arts. I'm super, super excited about what we can learn from you and from your experiences. Oh, that is a blessing. And I apologize in advance for all my lawyer disclaimers. <laughs> we would expect nothing less from an attorney than, than all the disclaimers. So um, do you have any disclaimers about your childhood? Uh, no disclaimers about my childhood. Um, so I was born and raised in Denver, Colorado. I'm actually here in Denver right now visiting my family. So I'm joining this uh, pod from Denver. Um, no disclaimers. I grew up in Denver, you know, surrounded by people that love the arts, appreciate the arts. Both of my parents were journalism majors from um, mm. Uh, that's both of their backgrounds, but, you know, my mom went into public service uh, with the state of Colorado and then eventually working with a nonprofit. And so public service was kind of always a common thread in our family life. A lot of volunteering, a lot of uh, community service, a lot of um, kind of reaching back into the community. That's kind of like a common theme that, you know, just kind of persisted through my childhood. Tell me more about this uh, commitment to public service that your family had. How, how was that transmitted to you? How did you imbibe that as you were? I think it was, I think it was more, I think it was kind of a show not, not spoken thing in our household. So my mother um, recently re-retired. She retired twice. It didn't take the first time. Um, and so after she retired from her job with the state, she ran a nonprofit for six years. It's called ELK. It's Environmental Learning for Kids. And it gets, um, you know, Latino, Black, Brown, um, underrepresented communities here in Denver, up to the mountains and outside using, you know, all of Colorado's public service and public lands. And through that work, my mom is like, a great community builder. She, there were always interesting people in our house who did really interesting things. And all of them kind of had this thread of public service. You know, everybody is running a nonprofit or doing an outreach or, or, you know, working on this thing. Um, and so she kind of like stuffed my home life and our personal life with these people doing really interesting things and these, um, really, um, interesting ways of giving back. And I can kind of like see that kind of common thread. It's kind of like 
it was not really spoken, but it was kind of understood, you know? Um, I always used to joke with my friends uh, when they got MLK, when we got MLK day off, you know, that wasn't a day off for me. My mom never let me really take that day off. We were at the Denver Marade. We nice were giving try. Our time. <laughs> and it was kind of one of those things that was always exemplified, but never really explicitly said, we do public service in this family. We give back. We are of, of this community. It was kind of just always done and always around. And I just kind of always thought that's what life was, is you give back. But that's so, incredible because it was like deep in the bone, right? Of what your family was bones. doing. Yeah. yeah, it's deep in the bones. And it's, you know, here and in this kind of community that we've built here, that she built here in Denver for us that I was a part of for years and years and years before I went to college. And so when I moved to college, I went to Howard University, go Bison, um, in D.C., I was looking for that sense of community and I, I found it in different ways. You know, I found it in um, dorm life, you know, volunteering and, and doing things. And I found it, you know, um, DC is such a hub, especially going to college in DC. I think a lot of people don't understand that um, DC is a college town. It's full of college, you know, really idealistic college students. And so, you know, I um, went to college during the first Obama term. So it was packed full of idealism and oh, that is gorgeous <laughs> and service and you know kind of all of these things you kind of I kind of built was able to build this a little bit of a community in um in DC you know during that era and then kind of just making sure that I knew where I lived and I say that in the sense of like making sure that I was a part of the community where I lived um so coming from Denver to to DC was a little bit of a culture shock um, just because it's the East Coast and I would get on the Metro and I'd go one stop and I'd get off and I'd think I was in a completely different neighborhood because we don't have metros or subways out here. And so it was kind of like making sure that I knew where I was and knew the people that were surrounding um, the college, just not not necessarily always in the college, but you know, the, the Washingtonians, like learning from them and learning where they hung out and what they did on their free time. So I was, you know, freshman and sophomore going to go-go concerts in PG County because I heard that's what Washingtonians did, right? That's what people who lived in the area did. And so it's always kind of been a thread. You know, I picked it up and carried it when I went to law school down in New Orleans, like being of a community. So I got down to New Orleans. It was like, where do New Orleanians hang out? What do they say? What do they do? How do they act? Not to kind of feel of a place and not kind of like a visitor or someone just there for college or just there for law school. Like, how do I kind of ingratiate myself and build these communities? Because that's how I operated. You know, that's the kind of how my mom operated here in Denver. And I I needed that <laughs> to kind of like make myself feel like I live somewhere more than just because I'm just here to go to school. You know, that was kind of never really how I wanted to approach living in a different area. So, so for you, this this idea of service is also very much tied, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's very much intertwined with this idea of place and the idea of community, mm -hmm. that no matter where you are, you need to, you want to, something drives you to establish community in that place right? and then live a life of service. Is that accurate? Right, right. Establishing a community, living, a, and then and then go on and, and kind of give back to that community in a way that like, you know, suits you. So with my mom, it's the environment. I'm not, I am one of the least outdoorsy person Same. in my family. They are all incredibly out there, outdoors women, outdoorsmen. They hike up everything, hike down, bike, walk, tread. And I am at the campsite. 
<laughs> I'm holding down the fort. Um, and so I, um, so it was, I think a part of my growth and a part of my path was finding what kind of, what that community building and what that service looked like for me, for my mom, it was the environment and open spaces. For me, it's arts and, you know, helping creators protect their work. And so it took a while to get there. When I was at Howard, I was a psychology major. I thought I was going to be a therapist because I like talking to people. And so I got into, Howard was pushing this uh, science curriculum for us to be, you know, they wanted people to have like a clinical, a clinical background. And I was a sophomore or a junior, I was a junior working with a graduate student that was studying the effects of ostracism. So like the effects of being left out. And I loved, the part that I loved the most was getting into a study and, you know, we had undergrad, other undergraduate students come in and take the study. And the part I loved most was giving the instructions and, um, you know, tricking them kind of into, you know, what we needed them to feel in order to study the effects of feeling left out that we needed. And then when that was over, when the study was over and it was the data time, it was the Excel and the P level and all of the statistics, I hated it. It was just, I couldn't connect with the numbers or the data. I didn't see the story it was telling. And it was, you know, my sophomore, junior year. And so I kind of had this um, throughout my college and early in my law school career had this um, kind of trial by, I won't say trial by air, but like elimination through trying it. So I did that clinical psychology. I tried it. It wasn't for me. Living in DC, I, you know, had that, you have that easy access to political science in the political space. So I went and I interned for the US Senator from Colorado. Um, it was Mike Udall at the time. And so I did a summer of politics, not my bag, wasn't really my thing. I got in there and they were talking about immigration and all of this other stuff that was interesting, but I just saw, you know, working with constituent services, it was really hard to get that constituent service side connected with the legislature side and to what, you know, each side was doing. And I just realized like the politics, the politics people weren't for me. And so I kind of kept moving. And then um, I played softball at Howard. And so being a jock, they had this panel where they brought all of these people, these really, really interesting people to talk um, to the students. And they were, you know, um, lawyers for the NFL and the NFL Players Association and all of these really cool things. And so uh, ESPN and NBA and NFL, and they had all these people in this panel. And I opened the pamphlet and I'm looking at the common thread and all of these people went to law school. So I go back to my dorm room and I Google best sports law in the country. And number three or four or five on the list at the time, I can't remember, was Tulane. So I applied to Tulane. And I do a couple of pre-law programs in the interim. Um, shout out to Clio program, which is a program that gets um, uh, underrepresented communities into law school and preps them for their first year of law school and in the application process. I did that and I went down to Tulane thinking I'm going to be a sports lawyer. I'm going to work for a league. I'm going to work for a team. I'm going to have these really cool jobs and it's going to be so fun. And they sell you this thing and it's like a glossy, I call it like a glossy pamphlet. You know, when you get that like 
good cardstock, that thick paper, and it's glossy, and it said sports law, and you know, <laughs> and I remember it was either the first or second week of law school, they brought the counsel for the New Orleans Saints in to speak with us. It's a woman, her name was Vicki Newmeyer, and that's when I realized Vicki Newmeyer is not only the lawyer for the Saints, but she's also the lawyer for the Pelicans, which is the NBA team. And they had one woman doing these two incredibly important jobs. But I realized that quickly that, oh, there's not a lot of jobs here. <laughs> oh, one woman is doing all of this. And right. she doesn't mean she's very, uh, she spoke about what she does and all of this stuff. And her team is so small. And you get the idea that, oh, she doesn't need help. Right. <laughs> um, and so I was in law school, again, doing trial by um, elimin you know, elimination by trying it. So I, I stuck with the sports law program. I took all the classes. But what I learned earlier on was that there's not a lot of jobs. Uh, and it's a lot of labor law and a lot of antitrust law, which was not exciting or interesting to me. So I, I took some time. I went and did a internship with the Mexican American Legal Defense Fund. They had a policy internship. So I thought I about going back to DC and doing some sort of policy work. So I did that for summer and that was amazing. They, um, Jim Kadima, who was running the DC MALDEF office at the time, would bring these incredible Latinas, these incredible speakers um, of in to talk to us about the work, doing the work, you know, whatever that policy work was, they would come and speak to us about doing the work. And that was really formative, but I didn't really want to pursue it as a career. So I head into my second year of law school, not really knowing this is when you start to specialize and see what kind of types of law you want to do. So you start to have more control over your classes, the ability to start to narrow them down. And I realized pretty early on that I still didn't kind of know. And I was kind of like trying things out. And I um, started interning with an organization called the Ella Project. And the Ella Project lets, lets law students um, help provide pro bono and low cost legal services to artists and musicians in New Orleans. And it kind of had some of the things I liked about sports law, the, um, the intellectual property, the um, talking to really interesting people about stuff they're passionate about, um, you know, this really interesting, this area that I, of law that I actually found interesting, but applying that to help, you know, artists, musicians, culture bearers in New Orleans. And it was supposed to be a one semester internship. And I ended up doing it for the rest of my time in law school. So for another year and a half. Wow. So that's, that's when you finally found, is that when you finally yeah. found like your place in the world? You said that was when I finally found the thing. And I was like, oh, I can keep doing this. I can do this. Forever. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it seems like in, in your whole path, as I'm hearing you tell your story, that you were right, really looking at the right way to connect and the right way right. to serve. Right, right. I would I would say that's exactly it. I would also say that, you know, something that I will always credit the Ella Project with, especially um, one of their co-founders, uh, Ashley Keaton, is she was really, really great about telling me that I belonged in this space. And there's not a lot of people, there's not a lot of women, there's not a lot of white women who will do that, who will say, no, 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 you belong here. I remember I was with her at a conference when I was a 
third year law student and I introduced myself to people, you know, we're in this crowd of people and I was networking and I introduced myself, myself to someone as her intern and she pulled me aside and she goes, you are my colleague. You, you know what I mean? You belong, you know, that sense of like someone that was the first time someone overtly said to me like, no, 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 you can do this. You're doing this. You belong here. Go say it. Right. Exactly. It's so powerful, so important. And it was kind of what I needed to say, okay, I'm serving, I'm serving in an area of law I'm interested in. And someone is also telling me I belong here. You belong I can do this. this. Yeah. What kind of work, if you, if you're able to, can you talk a little bit about what kind of work you were doing in the Ella project? Yeah. So we, uh, every Friday, the Ella project holds consultations. Um, so artists and musicians and everybody can sign up to have a consultation and they kind of give their life story a little bit. It's a little bit of legal triage, I'll say. So someone, an artist can come in and say, oh, I'm having this issue. I saw my my drawing up on Instagram. This is, you know, a case that I, I helped work on. I, I saw I saw my drawing up on this pretty famous musician's Instagram and she didn't pay for it and didn't license it. Like, what do I do? Boo. Oh. Boo. Right, right. And without credit, you know, a, a lot of times it's it's about credit and, um, and you know, what do I do? And so as a, a law student, it's kind of playing with fact patterns. It's kind of about taking what you're learning in class and really being able to apply it to someone's situation. So you're sitting there and you hear at, um, one of the, the attorneys who, you know, you're, the student attorneys are assisting the attorneys and you hear the attorney start to like triage the issue, start to pick out these little issues, but it's really about, and something I've been able to carry to in my professional life, it's about asking questions it's about, yeah, it's about asking questions that'll provide legally relevant answers. And so that's, you know, knowing the law and knowing what, okay, so you created this, this drawing, you know, that's, that's copyright. So that's me knowing that's a copyright issue, not necessarily a trademark issue, but I might ask, you know, do you use it in branding? You know, that's asking if we have a trademark issue. So it's, it's asking these questions in a way that's not um, intimidating. It's not asking questions in a way that um, is really legal, but it's, providing me, the lawyer, with legally important answers. And so just watching people kind of triage um, on that. You know, we worked with a lot of visual artists, people who were, you know, um, there's a lot of film and production down in New Orleans, NCIS New Orleans, all of these shows. There's uh, Louisiana at the time, had still does to this day, has a huge tax credit for the film and TV industry. So you would get artists in New Orleans saying, oh, this show, this film, this whatever wants to use my work in the background of this movie. Like, I don't know, they gave this contract and someone helped me read it. Um, so it's it's stuff like that, um, that really, you know, my last year, it was turned into more of an, a greater advocacy project. So it was taking some of that stuff that I learned in DC. Um, the, the New Orleans City Council was considering a noise ordinance um, when I was in my last law school year, and if you know anything about New Orleans, if you visited um, street music, um, buskers. How can you not have noise in New Orleans? That makes no how sense. How can you not have noise in New Orleans? So what they had was um, kind of an epidemic of people moving to New Orleans, buying real estate, buying real estate in the hot, sexy area of bourbon or, you know, right off of these cultural hubs and then being like, oh, my God, it's so loud. And, and wanting to kind of put a noise ordinance on it. And it was, you know, Ella helping with this advocacy of, of um, mainly brass musicians saying, if we have a three man brass, that 
without amplification, that's we're above the noise limit. And kind of really showing that to city council and being like, you put us on your commercials, you you tap us for your tourism, but if you slap a noise ordinance, you're gonna lose this really authentic way of creation and creativity in the streets and something that New Orleans is known for. It's known and for so, street music and music being everywhere at all times. That's like at all time. decimating the character of what the city is. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, that was one of our huge advocacy wins was, you know, being able to to show the city council like, hey, this this is more sweeping than you think. This is more than just the club blasting the music out of uh, on, on Bourbon Street. But this is really going to affect, you know, the musicians on the ground. A lot of your work also looks like it's about translating too, right? I, I mm -hmm. really love the way you spoke about how you were trying to ask the music, the artists questions that would um, help you to make a legal argument for them, but in a mm -hmm. way that they wouldn't feel attacked or even more scared or upset than they already were. So sort of like, that's, that that's, takes a lot of skill. And then translating uh, the concerns of the musicians or the city to city council in a way that they would understand and that would mm -hmm. move them. So, so your work is, it seems to me, is a lot about occupying that space between worlds, right? And and translating language and... and right. Priority. And yeah, and that's something that's really interesting, which is, you know, something that I really glommed onto with my work at Ella is talking to people, talking to people that are so passionate. If you you talk, you know, through your podcast, you talk to musicians and, and theater people and all of these artists and creators who are so passionate about what they do. And I get to listen to that and ask them questions and and really feel by proxy that passion that they have for their thing. And then, you know, use my skills because I am can't sing, can't dance, all of this stuff to use my the skills that I do have to kind of, like you said, translate, um, you know, and articulate what legal concepts might be affecting their work. Yeah, but that's, that's really important, Maya. And I think that's common to many, many arts administrators who ha either have not chosen to have their art be their primary uh, form of activity or who, um, like me too, don't aren't particularly talented <laughs> in any art form, but <laughs> all of them. Um, mm -hmm. I think it, is, it is also a creative endeavor. And it's a really, to me, the role of arts managers is really fundamental in making arts possible, mm -hmm. right? Because what you were talking about is basically people out there with power and means stealing the work of people without of artists without power and means right and you're giving them the tools and you're being the person that's making it possible for them to continue with their livelihoods and protect their intellectual property right right and for a lot of people this is their their business and their livelihood and they might not spend a whole lot of time on learning the business or you know what i mean that that is a time suck of doing the creative stuff so you worked for the Ella Project for a much longer period than you thought you right. initially. You found your calling. You found your place in the world. You graduated from law school. What was the ne what was next for you? The next step was uh, moving back to D.C. Um, moving back to D.C., one, because my undergrad degree held a little bit more weight up that direction. Um, and two, because you can't live in D.C. without hitting a lawyer. Um, it has more legal jobs than anywhere else in the United States. So I was, needed a job, didn't graduate with a job and moved back to DC to take the Maryland bar um, so that I could um, work in the area. And I happened to network through Twitter, RIP, um, my way to a job with a woman that um, owned and operated a boutique law firm doing a lot of intellectual property work. And um, it was great because um, she hired me without 
um, before I was officially barred and let me start working. And she threw me out of the nest. She, the first day was like, draft this thing. You know, at Ella, it was great. It was, you know, talk to the to the artists and consult and all of this stuff. And then we talked to the attorney and the attorney make sure we're headed in the right, you know, the supervising attorney made sure we're headed in the right direction. And there was checks and balances. And I got to this very small boutique firm and it was, oh no, we have billable hours, we have clients and here you go, go do it. And um, that was really, really interesting. And um, I learned a lot, I learned a ton. and we weren't necessarily working with artists. We were working with a lot of entrepreneurs, but the common thread there was kind of people who are really passionate about what they're doing. And, and so that was easy for me to take kind of those skills that I had learned at Ella and apply them to what I was doing. Um, ultimately she ended up moving the firm to New York. And so in 2017, and so in 2018, I joined the copyright office. So the United States Copyright Office is a federal agency that is under the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. So it's not under the executive branch. It's under the legislative branch. Um, so I joined the office in 2018 and was a visual arts examiner. And so what that means is if you want to register a work of art, you know, sculptural, graphic, pictorial art, a photograph, a sculpture, a painting a watercolor anything like that um you would send your application your fee and a copy of your work to the copyright office it would be reviewed by an examiner to make sure that it had the necessary creativity to be copyrighted and then we would issue a registration so um you know you might be saying like well how much is enough and the answer to that is a little bit um it's it's the bar is lower than you think, but you also don't want artists to be able to kind of have a monopoly over a building block. So for example, no one can copyright a stop sign like that, that pentagonal sign and that's filled in red. That is too basic of a thing. You don't want some one person to hold access to, to that thing. Um, so I worked in the visual arts department for about three years, examining all types of copyright work, architectural works, um, technical drawings. And in 2020, the Congress passed the CASE Act and the CASE Act established the Copyright Claims Board, which is the nation's first intellectual property small claims court. So what the CCB does is if you have a copyright dispute that's less than $30,000, um, you can bring it to the CCB, bring it to the Copyright Office instead of bringing it to federal court. Um, a lot of artists and art managers will know that um, it's very, very expensive to go to federal court if you have an issue about um, your work. Um, they did a study, and I think it was upwards of two hundred and fifty to $300,000 to litigate a copyright infringement action from end to end. And for a lot of people, that's just not accessible. So um, the problem that this, the CASE Act was trying to solve was how do people who um, would license their work for $200, $2,000, how do they protect their rights? Because if you don't, if you can't protect your rights, do you really have them? Um, so it was trying to help these um, these creators protect the rights. And so they opened up a detail for an attorney within the office and I was hired and ultimately hired for the permanent position. So now I'm one of the three copyright claims attorneys. Um, it's basically a staff attorney position um, within the CCB that helps um, users and creators of copyright um, 
file claims and litigate their claims through the CCB. So how does this position that you have now in the CBB, how does that tie into um, your uh, need to be, you know, with creative people and service and community? Uh, what is it that you enjoy the most about the job that you do, about the work that you do? Right. And so I'm going to pick up on the thread of our kind of our last conversation, which is to give my first legal disclaimer, which is I'm not speaking on behalf of the Copyright Office today. I'm speaking in my individual capacity. Um, <laughs> but I think that you kind of hit the nail on the head. Um, I was aware of the CASE Act when I was in private practice and thought it would be a great, great um, tool for these creators. And the thing that I kind of get to do is what I did at Ella, which is that translation that we talked about. I get to um, ask people legally relevant questions in a way that is not, hopefully not intimidating and hopefully helps them advocate for themselves. Um, the interesting thing about the CCB is that you don't need an attorney to participate. And the board is staffed with attorneys that um, can assist. We can't provide legal advice, but we can help you know what copyright law is, how copyright law, um, you know, what areas of the law may impact you. Um, and we can kind of help you advocate for yourself. You know, we can help translate the CCB procedures for you so that you can go advocate for yourself. And so, um, through that, we've done a ton of outreach. So I'm in webinars all the time. Um, I'm speaking to different people, different groups of people. I've spoken to the Dramatist Guild. I've spoken to um, the Photographers Association. And I get to speak to, again, all these people that are really, really passionate about the art and the work, um, the creative works that they're they're doing and wanting to protect them, um, and then helping them kind of advocate for themselves through the CCB process. So you can't give legal advice in a specific case, mm -hmm. but it looks like your office is proactive in teaching people about their rights. Right. Is that accurate? Right. Yeah, yeah. It's teaching people what they need to know to file a case, to um, litigate a case for themselves. And, and I think that there's something really empowering about that. You know, I talked a little bit earlier about how a lot of creatives can't, you know, learning the business side, learning the legal side takes away from, you know, takes away time from um, the creative stuff. But I think that there's real power in advocating for yourself, knowing what your rights are, and being able to assert your rights, um, and not needing anybody else to do it. Yeah, that is that is really powerful, because so often, um, artists are either portrayed or put in a position of being supplicants, right? Begging for funds, begging for, so giving them tools that you can actually use to defend yourself, to speak for yourself is, takes away a little bit, I think, of that feeling of powerlessness or of right, right. being left out of the, of the system. What kind of training, I mean, you had a, you had a very deliberate path towards where you ended up, right? By trying, you sampled all different kinds of law and then you said, okay, yeah. this is where I belong. Uh, is, is there a specific path of training to do the kind of work that you do uh, for someone who doesn't want to go into that lengthy examination of... <laughs> Uh, I, I would say that if you're interested in intellectual property, take all of the coursework and all of the classes that your institution offers. Um, I would say there are volunteer law, uh, law associations all over the country, all over the world that um, you can volunteer, get involved with. Um, you know, one of the things my mom taught me was that there's always someone doing the, the work 
You just have to find them. You know what I mean? A lot of times people think, oh, no one's thought of this issue or no one's helped here. And a lot of times it's like, no, there's people in that community doing the work. Find them, ask what they need. Um, so, you know, I will say for the Washington, D.C. area, there's Washington Lawyers for the Arts. You know, in New Orleans, it's Ella. There's always these, you know, kind of common thread organizations. So I'd, I'd look geographically and find an organization like that. That would be my next step um, if I was, you know, to kind of re-pursue this line. And um, the other thing that I would say is that, you know, keeping abreast of like what's new, um, keeping abreast of where your the the creative community is in, in your region is, um, is kind of the best standard practice. Mm -hmm. So stepping up back a little bit from professional training, right? From from the, um, the life that you chose for yourself. Let's talk a little bit about the life that you were born into. So you are a black Chicana woman. Uh, how, had, how did that identity inform uh, the way you developed? You feel it informed the way you developed as a person and as a professional and, and, your, and your outlook on life? Right, uh, I think it's informed it in a couple of different ways. The first thing I'll say is that um, you know, being mixed race, having that identity is, um, can be complex, um, to start out with, but, you know, my parents made very, very clear that you are black and you're also a Latina. Like they, it wasn't an either or in our household. It was, it was always an and. There's always an and there. Um, you know, and the other interesting thing, especially when I was doing work in traditionally Latina, Latinx spaces is that, um, people would see or hear some of my story, you know, oh, my mom uh, grew up, you know, my, my grandparents migrated here from Mexico. They were migrant farmers. My mom grew up, you know, in rural Colorado on a farm and they, and they hear that narrative. And then this black girl isn't who you expect to show up when you hear that narrative. Um, but I think that um, it, in my household, the first thing to know is it was, a, it was always an and, it wasn't a choice. It was always an and. And um, I think that as I carried that through my professional life, it's my parents instilled such a strong sense of self of who I was that it wasn't, it's not very shakable. It wasn't easily rocked out of me. So at Howard, it was um, an interesting, an interesting experience and identity because it was, I was no longer the only or one of the few um, in in a, an academic space, in a, in a rigorous academic space, it was, I'm one of many, one of, um, this is just, you know, this is how it's supposed to be. Everybody is very smart and the smartest person you've ever met. Um, when I went down to New Orleans, again, it was um, being one of the few, but like having that unshakable kind of a sense of self and identity kind of helped me not be thrown off base by, you know, some of the rigors of law school or some of the... Um, it's very easy to become the thing that you do. And while that's commendable in some spaces, mm. um, I, I'm not a lawyer. I'm a black Chicano woman who practices law. Right. And I think that my sense of self and that, that kind of identity was so instilled in me that it wasn't rocked in law school. Like it wasn't, oh, I am a law student. That is who I am. Like, no, that identity is, is who I am. What, you know, those values of, um, that were instilled is who I am. This is what I do. Your parents sound incredible. <laughs> they're, it was there and, you know, carrying that through to my professional career, it was, you know, knowing that I'm one of the, one of the only, or one of the few in a space, um, kind of, uh, 
makes me um, a little bit more in tune to make sure that we're translating things um, culturally, mm. you know, like culturally appropriate or, you know, um, making sure that we're, we're making sure that we're meeting our constituency and making sure that we're not, you know, so focused on the legal issues that we're missing the people. And, you know, the, oftentimes the people's aren't, the people aren't going to look like us. Um, and, and making sure that, um, you know, that we have that I carry a cultural competency and making sure that I'm not necessarily scared to say it. And if I ever feel scared to speak up or say something that, Hey, we don't say that, that doesn't sound right. That, you know, if I ever feel like I'm in a space where I'm scared to speak up about that, I'm in the wrong space. That's step one. I'm in the wrong space. And two, I'm going to say it anyway, but I think that I've been really blessed to be a part of organizations that know where I'm coming from and Mm. have allowed me the ability and the voice to not only speak up and say something when I see something, but also, you know, bring people with me, um, make, make space, um, for, for others that look like me. You need to give yourself a little bit of credit here too, uh, because you could have, you know, very strong sense of identity imparted on you by your family, which it looks like they did. So give you a firm grounding on who, where you came from and you could have had excellent mentors, you know, and spaces. Sure. But without your intelligence and your work ethic and your curiosity, that wouldn't have gone very far. So I think I'm going to give you a lot of credit, right? Because you had those supports, you know, you were able perhaps to use your intelligence and your talents and your curiosity to the maximum advantage, but you kind of need to have that right in yourself to be able to make the most of the opportunities. One of my New Year's resolutions is to take compliments better. So I'm going to take that better. Uh, I have a a friend that always says, um, I'm going to water your flowers. What you do with them is your business. That's that's excellent. Yeah. I'm very clinical about this. Having been, you know, teaching and mentoring and working with arts management professionals for like 25 years, it it does, you do need that fire and you do need the, you need to put in the work and you need to be curious and you need to be smart um, to really be able to make things happen. Uh, There's no amount of mentorship, no amount of mentorship, no amount of support system that will, um, that will bridge that gap for you Mm -hmm. if you don't have that. So Maya, I know I can't ask you in your official role, but as an attorney, um, what would be your advice for an artist who wants to protect themselves from the point of view of, of copyright? What can they do proactively so they don't have to uh, rely on the copyright claims board or, or go through you know, a bad moment thinking about what they're going to do to, to, to make things right? Right, right. The thing I would say is that uh, first, you are the expert on your work. You are the expert on what it, the creativity involved to create your thing, your play, your TV show, your painting, your photography, you're the, you're the expert in your work. So you're already ahead. You're or step one. You are the expert in your work. So you're already ahead. The second thing I would say is to learn the types of, uh, learn generally about copyright. There's a ton of resources on copyright.gov. Um, so learn generally what copyright is. And then I would say to learn about the rights. Um, the, the last step, the last little block is to learn about the rights involved with your work. So whether it's the right to distribute, the right to um, reproduce your work, you know, figure out what you're really concerned about, what you're, you're, you really want to protect. Um, and then, you know, take a little bit of time to do a little bit of reading again, ton of materials on copyright.gov, but um, uh, learn about the type of rights that are involved with your work. Is there any particular advice you would give on documentation and how to document that a work is actually yours 
so the, the, the first step is always copyright registration. So um, here in the United States, um, you can't sue anybody without a registration or refusal from the copyright office. That's kind of your ticket to court. So um, again, a ton of resources and materials on copyright.gov slash registration, but um, would, be, would be learning up on registration um, of your copyright work. Okay, great. Thank you for that. And I'm going to ask you for some more advice, but this is time it's more professional uh, advice for somebody who wants to follow the path that you have followed, um, who maybe is just coming out of high school, maybe thinking about going into college, uh, is really interested. You, you talked a little bit about the professional training that you need for, for um, a copyright um, attorney. Can you talk about um, what advice you would give them as a person? Because this is a tough, tough world and a tough job. So one thing I will say is that I'm not the best law student. I never was the best law student. I didn't come out of law school with the best, necessarily the best grades, but I did pick up um, a ton of skills and um, work product and work ethic in experimental classes or externships or internships. So that's, you know, Ella, that was, um, I did clinical work. So that was huge in, in my success later on. It's a tough world. It's a tough field. Um, what I will say is, um, you know, something I've learned through those many experiences and that kind of um, trial by experience is to pick up what serves you and leave the rest. So kind of I'm talking about skills. I'm talking about mentors. I'm talking about um, experiences. Pick up what serves you and then be OK leaving the rest. Um, at, there was jobs there. I've had jobs where I've had great leadership and great mentorship, and I've picked that up and carried that with me. You know, while I might have forgotten some of the ins and outs of that, the technical legal stuff I did, or or the experiences in the internship or externship that I did, but I picked up those people and I carried them with me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, picking up skills, writing, reading, and writing. Um, for law is is the end all be all. So picking up those writing skills from you know those advocacy jobs or those politic jobs that I didn't really love, but picking up the writing skills mm -hmm. and carrying them with me and leaving the subject matter mm -hmm. was you know has helped me in my career. Picking up um, the ability to speak to people, the ability to advocate for people. You know I've picked that up other places. I might have left the subject matter behind, but I picked up the skill and I took it with me. So I would think, you know, no matter what you're doing, what you're pursuing, um, keep yourself open to experiences, you know, take stock while you're doing it, take stock after it's over, you know, of what you want to pick up and take with you, what what is useful. And sometimes it might always be apparent at that moment, but picking up things that are, are useful and then being okay, letting the rest go. You know, I let politics go. I let um, policy work go, you know, to a certain extent, I do it a little bit in this job, but um, being able, you know, stuff I learned from my mom, I, I picked up community building, but I left environmental work, <laughs> being okay, picking up things uh, that serve you, but also letting, being okay, letting the rest go. So Maya, as you know, every time we have a guest on the show, we ask them to leave a question for one of the other Hithodas who's coming up. So um, do you want to hear your question? I would love to hear my question. All right. So this question comes from Magdalena Morena Mujica, the executive director of IFACA. And this is a question she left. If you were to be in a meeting or in a room where you had to speak or collaborate with somebody who was the antithesis of what you believe in and represent, how would you get them to the table? How would you create that common ground? That's a great question. I want to commend the question first. I want to stop and save space for the question because that's a great question. 
Um, you know, a common thread that we've been talking about is translating. Translating um, is a ton of what I do um, every day. But I would say that the thing that I found the most powerful in a room like that, where someone um, in my in my case, it's, it's artists, creators, users of copyright, um, making them feel open to telling their story in a space or to advocating for themselves in a space is making sure that we're all using the same vocabulary. It's one of the, you know, the things that I've pecked up and, and, and taken with me from another job. I don't, I hate the term um, talk down to because I feel like it's degrading and patronistic and everything that's bad <laughs> with a translation job. But I will say I love, I advocate for meeting people where they are and that includes vocabulary. Vocabulary is the first thing. If we're not all speaking the same language, even if we're not speaking the same language, but if 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 discovery, you know, a legal word discovery means something different to me than it does to you, then we're not we're not talking about the same things. So I think that the most important thing the that I try to do in a space like that to allow someone who is the antithesis of what I try to do or help advocate for is vocabulary. Let's make sure that we're all speaking the same language. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm speaking English and Amena is speaking Spanish, but that means are do the terms that we use mean the same things? Are we all talking about the same things? Are we talking about, um, are we having the same conversation? Because no matter what language you're in, if you're not if you're not sharing a common understanding, then it's really hard to advocate for yourself. It's hard to give space to, for people to advocate for themselves. So I think vocabulary is the most important thing. Make sure, um, and you know, that can be terms, that can be words, that can be, um, just like I said, common understanding, but let's make sure we're all speaking the same language before we get started. That's such a that's such an important and powerful point, um, because you're right. How can you get to any kind of understanding or moving towards a solution if you're talking about completely different things or you mm -hmm. are putting different weight or meaning on a term that you're using? It's impossible. Right. And, you know, it's inherently unfair. It's, you know, I work in an access to justice space and, and justice isn't mis you know, misunderstanding is injustice. You know, you can't get to, to justice through with a misunderstanding. So I would say that making sure that everybody is is saying the same things. What question would you like to leave for someone else? Okay, so I thought about this a little bit and this kind of goes to, to the thread of community building. Um, and we talked a little bit about mentorship, but I would love to ask the next person, um, how do you pursue mentorship and community building? What does that look like for you? Um, you know, being a mentor or, you know, trying to um, broaden your community and grab mentors. What does that look like for you in the space that you're working in? Great. I will ask that question for you. Yes. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I'll, I'll look out for it. <laughs> Maya, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you and thank you very much for, for sharing your time and your expertise and just your joy of what you do with us. <laughs> it comes through very clearly. Thanks you as well. This was Gestoras. This episode of Gestoras was presented by me, Jimena Varela, and produced by Anush Titanian. It was recorded in Washington, D.C. and Denver, Colorado. Our theme song is Hace que exista, Make it Exist by Eli Almik. The graphic design is by Bia Silva. 
Historas is mixed and supported in part by the Arts Management Program at American University, Washington, D.C. For 50 years, the Arts Management Program at American University has been training leaders in the arts to change the world for the better. Find out more at artsmanagement.american.edu. Follow us on YouTube at Gestoras and on Facebook and Instagram at Gestoras Podcast. Thank you for listening and don't forget to like and subscribe.